Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Today I have uh, Jeffrey Turner. He's an associate professor at the Yale School of Medicine, and he looks at uh, hypertension and high blood pressure. So, Jeff, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me, Richard. Yeah, what got you into uh, being concerned about high blood pressure? How long have you been looking at it and thinking about it? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I, uh, my, my general background in training is I, after medical school, I, I did training in general internal medicine and then a uh, specialty training in nephrology. And hypertension is one of those areas of medicine that many doctors are involved with caring for, whether you're a general internist, cardiologist, nephrologist, uh, and, and many, many others. So it, it was always something that I uh, had learned about and focused on somewhat. And then about six or seven years ago, uh, one of my colleagues who uh, is a mentor of mine, you know, we sat down and discussed about uh, becoming a certified hypertension specialist and starting a hypertension clinic here at Yale, which really focuses on more complex disorders of hypertension, not just your run-of-the-mill uh, stuff that might be seen in a general internist office. And, and that's when I really got interested in it and started to enjoy the uh, the type of work that's involved because it's a lot of you know deep detective work and trying to figure out what's causing hypertension in some of these complex cases that patients have. What are some of the more common types of hypertension and what are the, you know, are there any symptoms? Like, you know, what's, what's basic and then we'll get up to specific. Yeah, sure. So um, we kind of break um, hypertension into two broad categories, and the vast majority of, of people with hypertension is what we call primary or, primary or essential hypertension. And what that really means is it's, it's a multifactorial thing. It's related to age and genetics and lifestyle and other things. And we don't really have a lot of good ways of managing that other than telling people to live healthy lives and putting them on medications. That's about 95% of people of high blood pressure. The other category is what we call secondary um, hypertension, and that's uh, high blood pressure that's due to specific causes. So these can include things such as uh, hormone-producing tumors, often in the adrenal glands and other parts of the body, issues with the kidneys or the blood flow to the kidneys and other blood vessels in the body. And, and that's really the, it, it's that secondary causes that we tend to do a lot of investigating and treating of in our hypertension uh, clinic here at Yale. So, um, yeah, I've heard hypertension is, I guess they call it the silent killer. So how do people discover that they have high blood pressure? What was the context usually? Yeah, that's a very important point uh, that that the nickname of, of high, high blood pressure being the silent killer. So the vast majority of people will never have any symptoms of having high blood pressure. So it, it's something that's typically diagnosed on routine screening. So oftentimes when they come into their clinic for whatever reason it may be, or into any medical facility, they're often getting their blood pressure checked. And, that, and that's, that's how the vast majority of people get diagnosed. And, you know, that's one of the challenges of, of, of managing blood pressure or, or uh, caring for patients with, with high blood pressure is that convincing them that they have a, 
a, a problem that that needs some type of intervention when they feel well they're you know it's not impacted their lives at all but you're trying to convince them that something needs to be, needs to be done now to prevent problems that are often years and sometimes decades away from happening yeah, what what does uh, high blood pressure do to the blood vessels and uh, the other parts of the body like what are the problems it causes yeah so it um, over time it will cause uh, we use the term organ injury so it will it will injure uh, some of the organs within the body and so specifically the heart the kidneys and the brain are uh, are three of the, the the main organs that we see that get damaged so over time, it, it's one of the more common modifiable risk factors for things such as having a heart attack, having a stroke, or, or leading to severe kidney disease requiring dialysis. And th- those are the things that we're really trying to re- prevent when we're treating people for high blood pressure. Well, what, what does it do to the blood vessels? I mean, you know, every time your heart beats normally, they, I would guess they stretch and relax, stretch and relax. So they have some kind of like background elasticity in them, but high blood pressure, how much more does it cause them to stretch and how much more does it strain, you know, all the epithelium? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the blood vessels themselves are, um, you know, the way I, the way I think it's good, helpful to think about them is, you know, they're, they're tubes that have a mus a muscle that surrounds it. And that muscle constricts or relaxes based on, um, on how much blood flow needs to go to a certain area of the body. And, and what happens over time with high blood pressure to, to those blood vessels is they get hardened. So they don't dilate, they don't relax as well, and they remain in, uh, constricted. And, and so the ability for the body to shift blood flow from one area or increase blood flow to another area can be impaired. The lining of the blood vessels gets damaged, and that often leads to things cholesterol and what we call atherosclerotic plaques that develop within the blood vessel. And over time that can cause a narrowing of the blood vessel. And and that's essentially what often leads to heart attacks or strokes is that when the the blood flow through that vessel gets so small and it's a, it's an important blood vessel for a major organ like the heart or the brain, a, uh, a heart attack is what, uh, what, what results or a stroke is what results in that setting. So that pressure, increased pressure that accumulates over time. So this is not over the course of, you know, a short period. This is why typically high blood pressure is a disease that takes years to decades to cause problems because it's that repeated elevation in uh, force in those vessel walls that that causes this damage over time. Yeah, I, I guess I think of high blood pressure as a mechanical problem. Why would it cause atherosclerotic plaques? Why would it cause narrowing? What do you think is going on there to do that? Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. I, I think that that's a common misconception, I'll say, of, of hypertension, that it's just a, pro, a mechanical problem of having solely too much pressure. It really is a, a disease process that we, we were still beginning to understand. And, and probably at, at the 30,000 foot view, we see it manifested as that high blood pressure. But we know even when we control the blood pressure well, in some instances, we see organ progression can uh, still decline. So that's very true for the kidneys. We, we know that high blood pressure can start to deteriorate the kidneys. And even when we start to, to, with medications, control the blood pressure so the numbers look good, that hypertension syndrome, if you will, that still exists it still causes disease to the organs, even though that number, that blood pressure number might look perfect. So we know that controlling blood pressure slows that processes. And in some individuals, it, it can't even stop or reverse that process, but not in everybody. And specifically what it, what it does to the walls of those vessels is, um, you know, the, the lining of the vessel walls is a very uh, 
important barrier that exists there because there's 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 blood that's flowing on the inside of these vessels and the slightest disruption in these vessel walls can lead to uh, an inflammatory reaction in the vessel wall. And that's essentially what would lead to a blood clot. So through evolution, our bodies developed a very sensitive mechanism to form blood clots so that if we get uh, a cut in our on our leg or wherever else, we're not going to bleed to death. Our body will form blood clots. But that same system that's there to protect us in that sense it's very sensitive to these 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 forces that can be be creating pressure against the vessel wall, and that uh, that can lead to that uh, plaque formation and and those atherosclerotic plaques and other things that build up in the wall and, and cause the narrowing there. Do you think that the body fooled into thinking, uh oh, we lost integrity in in these blood vessels because the pressure is high and they're stretching or constricting more than they should? So go ahead and repair them. They don't need to be repaired. And this mistaken repair manifests itself in maybe, uh, you know, formation of, of plaques on the walls or narrowing and things like that. Could that be the mechanism? Yeah, I think that's a, a fair way analogy to kind of look at it is that it's, um, and, and this is true for a lot of diseases. Yes, that repair process that happens. So the, the you know, there's damage in the blood vessel wall. The, the body's attempt to repair it has good intentions, but there's unintended consequences. So those that inflammation that develops there really starts this process that the uh, that cholesterol that circulates in our blood can start to latch onto and deposit there. And over time, uh, that deposit grows and, and is what uh, starts to you know lead to blockage of the vessel. Is there any instrumentation that can be used to measure a person's blood pressure in different parts of their body? You know, uh, not just you know the wrist or the you know the the forearm, but the leg, the neck, uh, you know, near organs, etc. How could that be accomplished? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah. So let me answer that by just starting a little. Yeah. So Measurement of blood pressure is a very interesting topic and an evolving topic. What you kind of imply in your question is that I think most people are familiar with the general method of how we measure blood pressure, which is usually in the the biceps uh, of the arm. So that's the brachial artery is there. And and by putting a a cuff over that and inflating that, that's going to allow one to measure the blood pressure in, in that artery. Now that, but the pressure in that artery is, is not... Uh, the same pressure you're going to find in other vascular beds of the body. So we do have other ways. We do have ways of measuring other vascular beds within the body. The most precise way to do that is by placing a small catheter into a blood vessel with a transducer on it, and it will directly measure the pressure. So we, we um, in certain situations, will do that in st- stick a catheter into the large vessel that blood leaves the heart from, the aorta. And we'll measure the blood pressure there. We call that the central pressure. And that can that that central pressure that we're looking at, that, that's really one of the more important pressures in the body. And, and, and the one that we're measuring in the biceps artery is, is a 
is more or less a surrogate for that pressure, uh, which is why we're using it. But you know, the catheter-based measurement is something that can be done in any vessel within the body. It's just that it's an invasive procedure, so it's rarely done. There's there's new technologies that are being developed um, that are steering away from the traditional blood pressure cuff. So these include things um, that are based on ultrasound technology and and something called pulse wave velocities that look at blood pressure uh, in vessels that include things such as the arm, the neck, or other areas of the body. And the hope is, is that these technologies, while they're, they're, ver- they're underdeveloped right now, uh, they're not clinically used because they're still being developed and refined, but eventually these things will be, uh, these devices will, will start to become commonplace and replace kind of how we recognize blood pressure measurement now, which is with the, with the inflatable cuff. Has this been done in a mouse model or so the brachial artery, I'm going to have a certain pressure, but will it be different in my other arm, in my legs, in my torso, in my neck? Like how much do you think the pressure varies uh, around the body normally and abnormally? Yeah. Just the, uh, the physics of how, of how pressure travels throughout our body, it's dispersed and it will be um, different in different, different uh, vascular beds. So it's, it's, uh, you know, going to be different in the uh, brachial artery from the the wrist and the neck. So, you know, when we, um, we currently have some extrapolation. So, you know, the data that we, we look at, we have, you know, when we look at when some the major blood pressure trials that have been done have all been based off of, for the most part, the biceps artery, but we can extrapolate and, you know, in, in many individuals assess a blood vessel in another artery and kind of extrapolate that number to what it would be at the biceps artery, since that's kind of our gold standard. And, and we know that in different vascular beds, you know, the blood pressure, for example, in the, in the, in the wrist may be, may be higher than what it is in the biceps artery, just by the way of the position of the wrist. And, but we can extrapolate that. And some of these devices that, that are, that are being developed have these various algorithms and, and these standard ability to standardize the blood pressure back to the biceps artery, since that's kind of our, our baseline uh, conventional uh, value that we that we kind of think of and, and use to compare one person to the next. Okay. What do you, I mean, what's been the pressure difference if, if I'm standing up and you do my brachial artery versus me sitting down versus me laying down? How much will it change, do you think? Yeah, it's the, the key there is really um, where it is in relation to your heart. And so if you're, the reason why the bicep bicep artery was chosen, because it's for the most part, no matter what position you're in, this is not entirely true if your arm is straight up in the air. It's about at the level of your heart. And that's why it works so well. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. But if you were to raise your arm straight up in the air, and so now it's above your heart, you know, the blood pressure in that artery is going to drop, say, you know, it's going to be different in different people, but it, it may drop as much as 20 or 30 millimeters of mercury by putting it straight up in the air. So we know this, there, there's some blood pressure devices, they're called wrist cuffs. So they're, they're basically cuffs that go around the wrist and we, and, and some individuals use these at home and we were, it's very important that they, when they do it, they position their wrist over their heart. And we see that when they, if their arm is straight down, the blood pressure is going to be significant, significantly off versus if their blood pressure, their arm is way up in the air. So it's further away from the heart really, that's going to dictate the change in the blood pressure. Okay. When someone has high blood pressure or low I guess the capillaries, the most distant capillaries, are the ones that are affected the least or the most. I mean, like, you know, why would the kidney, for instance, preferentially damage in the heart and the brain versus other organs? Like, 
What is it about the vascularization there and the high blood pressure that causes them to be damaged first? So the organs, let me answer that question by just suggesting that um, many organs probably get damaged, but the, the ones that become clinically apparent are the ones that, ha- that have, you know, the, the symptoms associated with. It. So the heart, the brain, and then the kidneys, which we mainly detect by blood tests. There's, there's a certain bias that we, we know that we just recognize injury in those, in those organs more so than other organs. It's easier to test. With that being said, those organs are very rich in blood supply. So they have, they have a, a lot of blood vessels within them. The kidney gets about 25% of the blood that flows out of the heart. So it has a rich blood supply with very fragile capillaries. So the capillaries, while they're at the, the end of, of the vascular tree in between uh, the transition from arteries to veins, they are the most uh, fragile and sensitive to changes in, in pressure, if you will. So it's, it's not surprising that the level of injury is often seen at that capillary level uh, just, because of the, just because of that. Do the capillaries get crushed with high blood pressure or do they burst? No, or what happens? I, uh, what does blood pressure do? They can burst, but the typical pattern of injury that we see, so um, we do, we see this all the time in kidneys. We biopsy kidneys, is we see scar tissue uh, start to develop and basically block the the capillaries and 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 some of the smaller arteries just get uh, obstructed with with scar tissue that develops there that at that level. So that that's often what happens. Whereas kind of the more medium-sized arteries, which would, I, for example, I, I'd be talking about the arteries that supply blood to the heart or the brain, that's where you see those atherosclerotic plaques develop. Okay, I see. That makes sense. So it's, it's that same theory, but it's that same, uh, the body's perceiving that there's a wound there. So send in fibrous material or make, make it fibrous in that area and try to fix it or heal it. And instead, it leads to damage. You know, this is a common theme that we're understanding more and more in many diseases, which is really that there's this concept of inflammation or just, or, you know, inflammation throughout the body that probably promotes a lot of disease processes. And, and, it, and it, we have a, probably a very limited understanding of it, of how that works in detail, but we appreciate diseases that for, for a long time, we thought were just simply mechanical diseases. So a good example would be something like heart failure, which is where the heart just doesn't pump as well. Very mechanical, but there's there's emerging data that's showing that there's a there's a lot of inflammation that sets in from you know various reasons. The the, the tissues aren't getting a rich blood supply. They're sensing different changes in the blood flow and the blood pressure, and that just triggers the immune system to then damage things. So same thing goes with hypertension, as I was alluding to earlier. It's, 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 it's at the microscopic level, at the cellular level, it's a lot of inflammation that takes place. And we're just starting to understand why that occurs and what, what kind of controls those, those mechanisms. So how do the, um, some of the blood pressure medications work and are they effective? Yeah. So blood pressure, blood pressure medications have been around, you know, since the early to mid 1900s. So we have, uh, we've had these medications for, for decades now. And um, there is a, a number of different medications that have been developed that target different pathways. And for the most part, these medications are effective. So it's pretty rare for me to see a patient that I can't get their blood pressure controlled with medications. Now, sometimes it may take a number of medications, three, four, five medications, and that's not always ideal. But for most patients, uh, when they get on the right medications or a good enough dose or enough medications, their blood pressure is going to be well controlled. There are, with that being said, there's a small proportion of patients that even with, no matter what medications or how many, their blood pressure is not going to be controlled. And that's, that's often the ones that I see. But we've 
the pharmaceutical industry has developed a number of different medications based on various pathways. So these and some of the earlier medications that were developed were what what we call diuretics, which mainly focus on uh, promoting the kidney from getting more salt and water out of the body. So if the blood vessels aren't filled with as much fluid, the blood pressure is going to be less. And, and, and many patients, those, those continue to be cheap drugs that in many patients are very effective. But over time, it's developed to really target different hormonal systems and nervous systems, the sympathetic nervous system and the autonomic nervous system in the, in the body. So these include things such as beta blockers, which is a big class of blood pressure medication, Another class of medications that targets a hormone called um, aldosterone system, and these are called aldosterone converting enzyme inhibitors and and angiotensin receptor blockers. So these medications, um, there's a number of different medications. Many of them are very effective, and um, there's different strategies in how we apply choosing one medication for a person versus another. Do people that have high blood pressure, are they more susceptible to sudden changes in blood pressure that could lead to fainting or other problems? Yeah, that for the most part uh, is the case. So so definitely people who have poorly controlled blood pressure over um, many years, the body has the ability to do something that's called autoregulation, which means that if um, if I go to uh, if I go to stand up, the blood's gravity is going to want to pull a lot of the blood into into my legs uh, away from my brain and some of the other organs. But the body has a mechanism to uh, to prevent that from happening by by constricting blood vessels in certain areas of the body uh, and and dilating others so that the blood supply to the brain and other organs continue. So that process of auto regulation is very important. And people who have chronically uncontrolled uh, high blood pressure, that auto regulation process gets damaged. And so they're more prone to having injury to organs due to sudden changes in blood pressure, which can include things such as fainting. Hmm, okay. And in terms of blood pressure, what is high? What is dangerously high? And you know, like what are some of the, the numbers? Like, is the top number not as bad as the bottom number? You know, this is all coming from just, you know, being a lay person, that's why I asked. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, I'll start off by saying that, that that's been a, a very important question that's evolved amongst professionals. So what is what is considered a goal, a good blood pressure to get someone to? And that that's changed in recent years, even based on some studies. But just to give a little bit of background to people, you know, most people appreciate that when the blood pressure is measured, there's two numbers, a top number and a bottom number. So that Top number we call our systolic blood pressure, and that's basically the blood pressure generated by when the heart uh, contracts, and the diastolic blood pressure is the blood pressure that exists uh, when the heart is relaxed. We can have different patterns of high blood pressure. So some people have just an elevation in the systolic number. Some people have just an elevation in the diastolic number, and, and many patients have, have both. And, there, and so their injury can occur from any one of those patterns. But typically, we think of the systolic blood pressure, that top number being the, the number that we, we pay closer attention to and care about more in terms of, uh, of uh, preventing that from going too high. So the, the, the most recent guidelines in terms of what blood pressure, what is a good blood pressure, what is a gold blood pressure, as I term I like to use, really comes from guidelines that, that came out, the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology put out uh, new guidelines in 2017, which most practitioners abide by now. And that's really getting the blood pressure down to a goal of 130 over 80. So that's considered a goal of blood pressure in most individuals. And that's what we aim for. And, you know, some patients will get close and we don't always you know, it, it can be, it's a little bit of a nuanced process of deciding, you know, if someone is at 
135 over 85, do we put them on yet another medication to get their blood pressure right at that goal? Or do we, you know, do we consider their risk to be modified enough? And that that's a very personalized question for a given individual, depending on how much meds they're on, what their risk of uh, having a side effect is from going on more meds. And what, um, well, I would think there's a lot of variation. You know, if I'm a six foot four, 280 versus like five foot one and let's say Asian, you know, how much variability is there in people? Has that been looked at? Yeah. You know that, so that is a fair question. The studies that have been done, you know, many, many early studies in in high blood pressure had a homogenous population, mainly Caucasian populations, but there's been a lot of efforts in more recent years to diversify the populations in these studies and apply it. uh, So it's more applicable to a general population. And the, one of the, one of the landmarks, the most latest landmark studies is called the SPRINT hypertension trial, which had a, a fair representation uh, that, that really mimicked you know, the American population in general in terms of diversity. And the results of that study uh, actually showed that a blood pressure of 120 over 80 was very was beneficial. A systolic blood pressure of 120 is really what it looked at, was beneficial. And we, we assume that to be true amongst all races. So we don't really individualize our blood pressure so much, you know, whether I'm seeing someone of one race versus another, I don't necessarily modify my goal, but we do know that the consequences of blood pressure are, are we recognize are different. So an example of this, uh, we know that in Hispanics and African-Americans, rises in blood pressure often have, can, can have um, worse complications or outcomes. And this is manifested when we when we look at patients who want to donate an organ, so a kidney transplantation. The criteria for donating may be different in someone who is uh, Hispanic or African American. If they have even a mod- a small amount of high blood pressure, they may not be allowed to donate because the risk of them donating that kidney and only having one kidney may be may be higher to them than someone of another race. So we 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 think about race in that terms and and the consequences of the blood pressure, but. When we're thinking about the goal blood pressure, we really, we really, um, we really don't modify it based on race or or body size. We do factor in age to to some extent. Now, there there were there were some studies that looked at age, and 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 this gets to the concept that you know an older person, definitely an older, frailer person. If I lower their blood pressure, am I causing more harm than good? Or am I putting them at more risk of having low blood supply to their brain, increasing the risk of stroke possibly, or having them fall and injure themselves? And there were some studies that showed, um, you know, having a, a higher blood pressure in older individuals over the age of 75, over the age of 80, maybe um, not such a bad thing is, is the term I would use. But Again, that sprint trial that I alluded to before uh, did a really good job of enrolling a number of older individuals. And when that data was looked at in different subgroups, even including those who were older, really, it really boiled down to that even blood pressure control, strict blood pressure control in older individuals, so long as there's not a risk of them having side effects, seems to be the way to go for the most part. Do you think it should be taken into account, you know, age, sex? physical condition, et cetera, to get a more, a better idea, or there's just not enough data yet to determine if it, you know, if this one set of numbers is enough as a gold standard? Well, I, I think I would, I would, I would answer that question this way. I, I think it's dangerous to just apply one number to, to any individual you're seeing, right? So we, we have this idea of, of 130 over 80 being a goal, you know, so when a patient walks to the door, if I know nothing else about them, that's going to be, you know, the general sense of a goal, but as they walk in and I start to talk to them and get to know them, 
there's a lot of factors that go into whether I truly, you know, whether I'm truly going to uh, maybe put them on more medications to get to them at that goal. And and that includes things such as their frailty and, and their age and things such as that but also just their personal preference. We know that about, you know, 50% of the medications that we prescribe are not taken. So I often try to, to really win over the trust of my patients and understand what they want. You know, when, when we're treating high blood pressure, it's a, uh, it's not a small thing to ask an individual. And I think, I think this is where physicians, we often overlook this point, but it's not a small thing for us to sit down with somebody and you see their blood pressure is high and to put them on a medication that they're going to have to take for the rest of their lives, most likely every day for the rest of their lives. That's asking a huge amount from somebody. And it's not an unreasonable ask from them that they may not want to do that, especially from, as, I, as we talked about earlier, this is a silent killer. So they don't, it may not be their biggest priority to treat their blood pressure now, even though it's posing risk, you know, years down the road. And that's, um, those, those are things that personal preference with their, a lot of uh, social determinants that are involved in their, in their story. Those are things that I really uh, try to tease out and, and use to, to decide about uh, whether I'm going to strongly suggest someone goes on more medications or whether we're going to talk about healthier lifestyle choices and, and, and leave the medications alone for now. It's a tricky thing. And I think that's really where the art of what I do comes in. I found it to be very psychological. Like, you know, I have the white coat syndrome and I hate when they take my high blood, my blood pressure. And if it's high, I worry it's going to be high. And then when it is high, I'm worried about that. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just, I don't know. The whole thing is, uh, it's just difficult. You know, it's like, again, it just seems to be very psychological. And, you know, if you know you have high blood pressure, then you're in a situation where someone makes you mad. What do you do? You think, I can't let my blood pressure go up. I don't want to die. You know, it's, it's all, all these things go on in your head as, as someone that has it, do you ever encounter that with patients and how do you speak to them about it or so? Oh yeah. We, we, that, that is a common, common uh, scenario. So let me, let me address some of those things. Cause there's a lot there. So in terms of the, um, you know, the anxiety about even just having your blood pressure checked, that's very common. And that's really why many folks who, who take the management of high blood pressure seriously, we really prefer that the measurements for, for high blood pressure, not be done, not be done in the clinic. We know that a lot of, you know, that that's not the most reliable blood pressure in many individuals. It's, it's um, higher in the clinic. And in, in some, in some individuals, it's actually lower in the clinic. We call this mask hypertension when it's lower in the clinic and higher, you know, throughout the, you know, in your, in, in someone's normal environment. And then we call it white coat hypertension when someone comes in and their blood pressure is higher in the clinic and lower uh, in their normal environment. So, so to get over that hurdle, we really have a number of means of, of tr- we encourage patients to, to get blood pressure monitors at home for themselves and encourage them to monitor their blood pressure themselves. We have devices that we, that are, we call them 24 hour blood pressure monitors that we attach to patients. And they basically walk around with this blood pressure cuff for 24 hours and it measures their blood pressure roughly every 20 minutes. Um, and, and, and that, that, that's really important. Um, yeah, what, what's been observed there. That's really interesting to get all that data. Like what's been observed. Yeah. So one of the main things that's been observed in that data, the 24 hour blood pressure is that, um, one of the things that turns out to be pretty important is your blood pressure. What happens to your blood pressure at night when you sleep? 
And so um, most people, what we recognize as the healthy pattern and what we see in most people is that the blood pressure should drop by about 10% at night when you sleep. There's individuals where that doesn't happen. It drops, but not, not by 10%. Or there's some individuals where the blood pressure actually goes up at night. And we know that separate from them having high blood pressure, if they just have one of these abnormal patterns of blood pressure at night, that's a risk factor by itself as well for having uh, cardiovascular events down the road, heart attacks and strokes. Well, I guess it could, it could point to apnea or snoring or other sleep disturbances too. So it sounds like it'd be very useful to, you know, to wear one for 24 hours to see as part of like, a, I guess they do it as part of a sleep study, but separate from that, it'd be good to know. Yeah, I, I find it an incredible, valuable tool. So I, I often recommend patients do this because it really you know, it, it gives you a complete picture of what their blood pressure is over 24 hours. And, and that's, you know, you think about it, you come into a doctor's office, you're getting a very small snapshot of a blood pressure measurement, uh, an instantaneous blood pressure measurement that may or may not really reflect what your blood pressure is throughout most of the day. And, and it's that blood pressure that you have through most of your day that we're really worried about. We all have rises in our blood pressure whether it's, you know, you, you have an event where you get angry or you, you know, exert yourself, your blood pressure is going to go up and those aren't necessarily unhealthy. That's, that's just part of the normal operations of the body to raise the blood pressure in those settings in response to the nervous system and hormones that are developed. But it's, you know, we think of blood pressure as kind of, a, and this is the term we use in the 24 hour that we look for the average blood pressure that one has over that 24 hour period. That really is kind of the the load that that we're assuming the blood vessels are under and uh, and the organs are under. Okay, well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about blood pressure in general? And then, you know, where where do you serve? What areas? If they're near to you, you know, can people get help from you specifically? Yeah. So the American Heart Association has a great website that caters towards lay people, and and that's one of the major. Um, cardiovascular organizations in the country. And so they are well, they're heavily invested in um, educating people about blood pressure. And it's a great resource for people to go to. So it puts things in in very um, understandable terms and, and terminology uh, in terms of educating people. So that's, that's one thing I would recommend at the American Heart Association website, which you can Google American Heart Association, you'll find it. And then they have uh, links right on their homepage for hypertension. So myself, I'm part of the Yale Hypertension Clinic, which we have a website as well. And we serve uh, patients really from anywhere, but the vast majority of our patients come from uh, our surrounding area here in, in Connecticut and the New England area. So definitely anybody in that region that uh, would like more information about uh, high blood pressure, go to our website and, and we're happy to, uh, to there, there's instructions in there how to, how to reach us. Very good. Well, Jeff, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. All right, Richard. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.